Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's up, y'all? It's your boy David with Blackwell Renaissance, and I'm here today to tell you guys about Anchor. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it's the best place to make a podcast. Anchor is a free app that has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone. Anchor also distributes your podcast across all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. You can also make money on your podcast with Anchor with no minimum listenership. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're looking to get started on your own podcast, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Do you know the rules of the game? Yeah. You know the rules of the game? I don't care what color. Can you make me a hundred million? Let's talk money. Can you make me that? If you can't make me that, I won't talk to you. Hey, I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my line unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is broad money marathon. Do five years of this and be a millionaire and go on do what I want to do. Have kids, go live my chip and joy in a game's life out here in Texas or struggle for next year. The choice is yours. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. Our goal of this podcast is to normalize black wealth and share helpful resources and tips we believe will be useful in attaining and maintaining generational wealth. Please feel free to rate and comment on our podcast. We would love to hear all feedback you have. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. Your boy, David Bella, one-fourth of the Black Wealth Renaissance, checking out with my co-host. Fellas, how y'all feeling? What up, what up, what up? It's your boy, Jalen, man. Feeling great. It's a Wednesday. We at it, and we going hard, man. Can't wait to get this one started. Man. What's good? What's good? It's your boy, Jerry, checking in, man. I just got off work not long ago, man. I'm just chilling today, man. Just good old hump day trying to get to the weekend. You know, us nine to fivers. (laughs) Hey, man, but look. Man, we got another Louisiana native. Yeah. A brother from the boot who doing some crazy things, man, right down the street from here, from Lake Charles, Louisiana. We talking none other than our boy, Chris Senegal, doing his damn thing out of H-Town, man. First, he didn't bought the block. Yeah. Then he let y'all buy the block with him, man. Like, I can't even. <laughs> it's just so much that my brother is out here doing. Hey, I like this is a long overdue. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast, my brother. Appreciate it, appreciate it, man. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no problem. Chris, we glad you could come to the show, man. Where we normally kick this thing off, for everybody who is unfamiliar with you, could you tell them who is Chris Senegal and how you ended up buying the block and helping people buy it with you? Yeah, let me try to keep that short. All right, so Chris Senegal, like I said, born in Lake Charles, lived nine years in Port Arthur, too, so I kind of claim both. But um, I was a teenage dad. You know, I was kicked out of middle school for selling alcohol, so I had a lot of reasons to, you know, make excuses, but I didn't. Went to college on full academic scholarship for civil engineering. Got out, got that good corporate job, got that, you know, corporate salary, got that house, and went to work every day and realized I hated it, man. I was like, I sold the dream. So I was a civil engineer working for the railroad at that. A lot of people like those railroad jobs, but you know, it's good money, but you know, you're still under the control of somebody else. Somebody else dictates everything about your life. 
So for me, it's like, I got to figure out how I'm going to get out. So I started with options trading in 2008, kind of similar to the market where it was right now. You know, so money was being made for a little while. Then it got too crazy and money started going out the window. So I hit reset and I started reading books and uh, real estate kept coming up. So I made my decision to focus on real estate in 2008. I was in Memphis, Tennessee. I quit that job, moved back to Houston, be back closer to my son and my mom. And I started flipping houses in 2008, man. So I kept my corporate job to 2015, but the whole time I was just steadily building. And um, in 2013, I had the first opportunity to do something bigger because I had rental properties. I had houses I was flipping and selling, but I just felt like it was something bigger that could be done because like I was watching everybody else doing the same thing. And I was like, man, nobody's really tackling any of these bigger issues in our community. And as a matter of fact, a lot of us that are buying rental properties and renovating them and, and increasing the rents or buying a house in the hood and flipping it and then selling it, we actually accelerating gentrification because the people that usually buy, the people that move in, aren't the people that were originally there. So for me, my focus became how can I create a solution where it could be a win-win for everybody. And so 2013, I had the opportunity to own or finance an entire block. So that means go buy a whole block without using the bank. The owner uh, had inherited it from his dad and he was bad off like a slum lord and just tired landlord. And I negotiated a deal with him to pay him 450,000 for the property, but on payment terms. So I gave him 10% down and took over the property. This was in Fifth Ward in Houston, the hood, they was calling it the bloody nickel, you know? But I saw the potential in it because from that property is right on one of the main freeways. I could see downtown. I was like, eventually it's gonna be worth something. So, yeah, that's how the journey started, man. From there, you know, I guess we'll get in more detail about everything else. But, yeah, that's how it started. Bro, that story is great. I didn't even know that you had got kicked out of school. Then you went yeah. back to school. I knew you went to school for, like, academics yeah, and it's, stuff. it's a crazy, and I, it's a crazy there, but I didn't know that you had got kicked out and stuff. So, that's... I, the, man, you know what? I was, like, the smartest kid in the class, but also the class clown at the same time, you know. And I always just felt like... I was bored, you know what I mean? So this is kind of confirmation now that I just wasn't cut to do the regular stuff, you know? You wasn't being challenged enough too sometimes. Right. Like, sometimes that's, exactly that's what it is. Was. Like, yeah. yeah, we can do the school stuff, but that's boring after a while. Like, mm -hmm. I can understand this. You yeah. probably, obviously you're an engineer, so probably more hands-on, more technical and stuff. Probably a little bit more advanced than everybody, man. But that's dope that you was able, even though, I, I said that to say this, that even though you met adversity, you still found a way to overcome it and right. you still found a way to say, okay, I'm still going to make it in the school mm -hmm. and I'm going to make it on an academic scholarship. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was really great, my brother. And also with the options trading, that part kind of stuck out to me too, because like you said, it's very similar to right now. And that's kind of like some eerie feelings to me, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things where a lot of money can be made, but a lot of money can also be lost. Now I will say this, I've been watching some of the new guys that are teaching options trading now. And they have gotten more sophisticated with it and there's more technology than there was in 2008. So it may be a better, a safer bet now. But I mean, you meet a lot of people that are multimillionaires in many industries, but you don't meet a whole lot of people that retire from trading. There's some, there's a small group. So I don't knock everybody that's doing it. And I guess if you're following somebody that's teaching you the right ropes, then it's possible that it could be a lifelong income earner for you. But, you know, for me, it just, it was too volatile. I like something that I have more control over, you know, but I'm not knocking nobody that does it. People make money doing everything, you know? Hey, Chris, I really want to hop into, man, you was talking about that neighborhood in the fifth ward that you bought off the owner yeah. finance. First, with yeah. the owner financing deal, bro, like how, you know, a lot of people, they don't really think that it's possible whenever you talk right. 
buying a whole block that you can really get mm -hmm. the person to agree to sell you something without paying them all that cash. Like how negotiate a deal like that? Man, all right. So negotiations. You gotta find people that have a pain point, right? And you gotta find people that uh are basically in a distressed situation. And number one, you gotta find people that probably aren't the ones that worked hard to get whatever they got. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I talked about this recently on one of my posts that owning a big portfolio of real estate does not automatically equate to generational wealth, like a lot of people think. Because what you see, just like anybody that's wealthy that has a business or anything, when you raise your kids with a silver spoon and you don't teach them the importance of money and how to use money, how to make money work for you, and they're just always giving and take, you're always giving and they're always taking, then when you hand over the money producer, the asset to them, they don't know what to do with it, right? And so every big portfolio of rental property I got right now, I bought it from the heir of a real estate investor that had a big portfolio. Hmm. Every one. And that's Baton Rouge. And that's two blocks in Houston. Same, three different families, same situation. So it's congruent. And yeah, so, you know, first thing is finding somebody like that. And then, you know, they've inherited it. They, and they inherited it in a state usually where there's so much that needed in repair that they don't have the money to renovate it. So they're just trying to, let it carry itself and they're getting frustrated. But that's what this guy was. And so it was at the point, it's like, look, you know, you got this money coming in every month from these rents. You don't have the money to fix it up. Let me take it over. I'm gonna give you a lump sum right now. I'm gonna give you, so I gave him 45,000 and like, and then I'm gonna make monthly payments to you. So when I make these monthly payments, is your revenue stream really ain't gonna change. You was getting rent. Now you're getting a payment from me for the next 20 years. And so for him, he was like, okay, I'm 70 years old. What's the chances of me being 95 and you know, you know, still being around. He's like, okay, so I'm basically gonna have money for the rest of my life. Cool. Same difference. And he don't have to worry about the headache of property management, he don't have to worry about the headache of paying taxes, he don't have to worry about insurance, he don't have to worry about none of that no more. Right. So for him it's a win. Also, if I went to him and said, I'm gonna pay you 450 cash, he's gonna get a big tax hit on that. You know, so a big portion of that 450 goes to Uncle Sam. So if you can sell them on those facts, it's like, look, you make more money in the long term because you make an interest on top of it, you know. And um, you get paid out over time. You don't miss any money. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Then it can be a win-win for everybody. I like that. I like that you make it like a win-win situation for both parties. Like, Man, that's the number one thing I learned about negotiation and getting people to do creative things out the box. Number one, you got to show them what's in it for them before you tell it what's in it for you. You know, you have to. And I like that, especially now because we're on the topic of real estate. You see that a lot with wholesalers. A lot of times wholesalers, they don't really want to solve the problems anymore. A lot of people, they just trying to beat people out of their money. Then they turn around and they're trying to beat the buyer on the back end too. Mm -hmm. So I like how you mentioned, you know, you got to make sure you show what's in it for that other person in that negotiating because I'm pretty sure they help you close a whole lot more deals too. Oh, definitely, man. Definitely. I mean, whenever people feel like you're really solving a problem for them and you're helping them more, more so than going after it for yourself, they always buy in, you know, 100% of the time. And now I kind of want to go more into the actual neighborhood that you purchased in, bro. Cause okay. you mentioned they call it the bloody nickel. They, yeah. like, and when it comes to these low income type of crime areas, a lot of times we run from that, but you saw the value in that. Like, could you speak more to that? So let's start from the beginning. At one point in time, this neighborhood was founded in like 19, 1900, 1910, right? 
And this was before desegregation. So this was once a thriving black neighborhood, right? This is one of the first neighborhoods settled in Houston. Matter of fact, it's the first neighborhood settled by Creoles from Lafayette, Acadiana area when they moved to Texas. It's actually called Frenchtown, the little blocks, the area that I bought. But yeah, so this area went from thriving and then after desegregation, when we felt like we had the right to move to other people's neighborhoods, a lot of us moved out of our own neighborhood, right? Because we felt like we earned the right to go move in somebody else's neighborhood. And this Fifth Ward also was a thriving business district. Like we talk about Black Wall Street all the time, but every single city had to have a Black business district because we couldn't patronize nobody else's stuff. Mm-hmm. Like doctors, lawyers, insurance companies, restaurants, tailors, you know, laundromats, everything. We had everything in our neighborhoods. So now all these abandoned buildings, I guess we grew up seeing them abandoned, so we don't really ever think about what they once were. Yeah. Right? So what you see in the neighborhood now is the people that didn't make it out when everybody else left. But there's still a lot of opportunity there. I mean, usually what happens is we look at the people that are still there and we do two things. Number one, we say, oh, it's too rough. You know, it's too hood. I wouldn't want to live there. And number two, when somebody does try to go do something, the other group is like, nah, don't do nothing over there. Don't make it nice because you're going to make it unaffordable for the people that are there. Let's make a charity neighborhood where we only look out for them. We only do low income stuff, you know, and we beg the government to bring a grocery store back. And none of that never works. You know, like we've been trying that for 50 years and it hasn't worked. So the model, the model is what we should be doing is let's go back to these neighborhoods that were once thriving. Let's take control of them and let's rebuild them. Let's build them back up. Right. And so for me, it was like, okay, I see this opportunity here because if you look at Houston redevelopment, like 40 years ago, everything inside the 610, which inside the loop of downtown or around downtown was the hood. There was all wards all the way around. It started in the Heights and it moved counterclockwise around downtown, everything's been gentrified and revitalized, right? So Fifth Ward was like the last quadrant that that hadn't happened to. So for me, it was just like a calculated risk. I was like, I'm watching everything creep this way and eventually it's gonna get over here. So I positioned myself in front of it while everybody else is still, you know, discarding the neighborhood. I'm like, I'm gonna be in a position to win eventually. I didn't know how the win was gonna come. I didn't know what it was gonna be, but I just had the foresight to know that I needed to be in front of the wave, you know? And so, yeah, so that, that's how I got into the neighborhood, man. And yeah, when I, when I bought into it, like I said, the particular block that I had, it was an old abandoned grocery store. Lady was just selling uh, food illegally, selling beer and wine on Sundays, Asian lady, selling food stamps, all kinds of stuff. So I had to kick her out. And on the rest of the block, it was drug addicts, prostitutes. It was bad, bro. It was bad. Like a lot, like had at least two or three police calls a day. So I had to clean all that up. But, you know, it was basically an investment. That was a sweat equity I had to put in to say, hey, I'm, what, 29 on a whole block. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so that's how I got into it, man. Man, they got some key takeaways I definitely want to dive into on that, man. I think one of the biggest ones was, like you said, you didn't chase the weight. Like, a lot of people, they probably were watching it as it was happening. Mm -hmm. But you said, you know what, I'm watching it, you know, clock, clock, clock. It's going to hit me at one point. And you did it in a district that was known for black excellence. So that's going to even make it hit even harder. So now whenever, you know, they're gentrifying all these hoods, you can't touch this one. Like, we update, but you can't touch this one. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so that's kind of what happened. So I bought it in 2013, and in 2016, the biggest developer in Houston that built the big city center development uh, announced that they had bought 150 acres in the south end of Fifth Ward, like right on Buffalo Bayou, right next to downtown. So that's when I was like, okay, the bet paid off, you know, but they didn't say when their project was going to start, but I knew eventually something was going to come. So 
that kind of solidified everything. It's like, so you got two parts to it. You got to have the foresight to know where to buy. And then you have to have the understanding to know when to move. Like after you control it, don't move too soon because you may invest in something and rehab it in, but there's still no demand for no interest for anybody to move back to the neighborhood. So you got to have both of those variables in that equation at the right point in time to make it a win. No, no. Dang, I have a question. I thought you was about to say something. And so we, whenever you're doing that and doing your research, I, were you going to any type of like economic development uh, meetings or anything like that? Just so you can know, okay, I know that this is where they might be allocating some of the funds to or anything like that. Yeah, so definitely you want to stay plugged in with city council minutes from meetings because anytime there's a big project, the developer usually has to go before the council to ask for what they call a variance for the change of use for a property. You want to look at the city's planning and urban development department online. That'll tell you like the five and 10 year plans for the area. And then you want to, you know, just read the newspaper, you know, and watch the news because new developments are always announced way before they actually break ground, you know, and other things you can do is like, I was very plugged in with all the realtors that worked with builders and new construction people because they are the ones that are also in the forefront because they're really closely connected to the commercial developers. They know them. You know, so whenever they know their friends as a commercial developer is about to do something, they're going to go start building in that area. You know, so when you have all those different sources of information, you can kind of piece it together and understand what's about to happen. And so like with all that that you just said, kind of kind of to me, I think it answered a little bit of what I had in my head. So I know you revitalized the area after you cleaned it up and all that. That thing that you were doing, you were really you only uh, selling to people who look like us. And I think that's a real, real important thing when it comes to developing our communities and redeveloping them. So, like, what were some of the things you used to kind of get people to go back to that neighborhood after, you know, it had built such a bad reputation? Yeah. So, number one, technically, you can't discriminate on who you sell to. So that's the other side of the Fair Housing Act, right? Like, you can't say, no, I'm only selling to black people. But what I made sure I did when I decided to start the new construction was educate us on the importance of getting in early. Like we always complain about gentrification. They always complain about how we never can afford anything in that neighborhood. But I had to educate everybody on the fact that the prices just don't start at this high. You know, while we still call it the hood, the prices are here. While we still call it the hood, the prices are here. And by the time we go back to the neighborhood and realize it's changed, the prices are here. And then we're like, damn, we can't afford nothing. You know? Mm -hmm. So, but what really happened is while we were still calling it the hood, they were in there walking their dogs. You know what I mean? So you have to be okay with moving in before everything looks nice. If everything looks nice, you have missed the wave. You, you've missed that value appreciation wave. And so for me, that's all it was. It's just educating people on that, educating people on the importance of realizing that these neighborhoods once had a rich heritage and it's important for us to move back if we ever want those narratives to change. If we really want the grocery stores to come back to these communities, some of us have to take the charge and actually be the ones to move back and buy the properties because the grocery store is going to pull the demographics of the area. They're going to look at the average income of the area. And if all the corporate guys, the lawyers, the doctors, the dentists, if they all in the suburbs, when they pull a demographic in that neighborhood, it's not going to show anything. So we got to be there. You know, it could be a win-win for everybody. So that's really what it was, man. I mean, my first two buyers, actually, they already had that mentality. Like we think nobody wants to move back, but it's people that really do want to live back in those neighbors. The first two people, they saw what I was doing and they put contracts in and then they found out about my movement. And they were like, wow, you really on a bigger wave. Like that made them even more energized about being a part of it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's a lot of opportunity for us to continue this and duplicate this and replicate it and just expand on it. Man, that's beautiful. I love how everything in your strategy has it set up for everybody to be able to win. 
like the buyers of the houses are winning, like the investors are winning. Everybody is able to win from like beginning to end. And I love how you set it up to like give people an incentive to try to get back into those neighborhoods. Because what you're saying is the truth. Like corporate gonna pull those numbers. They gonna try to see the demographics. Like this is what actually creates change. Just going out and doing something about these neighborhoods, not just leaving them how they are. And right. talking about gentrification, talking about it ain't gonna bring no businesses and no stuff back in. Yeah, that's right. And every one of my buyers, I know for a fact, I'm selling them under three hundred thousand on purpose. I wanted the houses to be the same price as they are in the suburbs. I know each one of those houses is going to be worth 400000 in four or five years. So everybody that's buying is going to have 100000 equity. That's increasing their net worth. Everybody talking about the African-American net worth is going to be at zero. Well, if we do things like this, we, it won't be. Everybody, you know, will we'll increase the net worth, you know? That's the whole goal. Man, and I kind of want to get into, like, whenever you were coming into this neighborhood, were you kind of met with any type of resistance from the people who are in there, like, living there and kind of like, okay, because, you know, you look like – Everybody look alike, but they probably like, man, what this dude doing thinking he about to come and change all of this and that? Was there any type of like resistance like that? And how did you kind of like educate those people if you did meet that re resistance? I really didn't because I didn't come in and like change anything overnight, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine I bought the property in 2013, cleaned it up. I actually did parolee housing for like three years on it before I started any new construction. I didn't start demolition until late 2017, okay. but the neighbors had watched me go in, clean it up and like get rid of all the bad traffic. I mean, there's kids right now that are, that are next door, they're like eight or nine. When I bought the property, their parents wouldn't let those kids go outside. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because of the crackheads and the drug addicts and everything. And now the kids playing outside, you know? So all the neighbors are happy for what I did. The junkies are probably the only ones that's upset, but I mean, they just moved to another area, you know? So uh, yeah, I really didn't meet that. I really didn't have that. And um, I think once I started new construction, people got nervous. But once they started seeing who the buyers were and who was moving in, they were actually impressed. Like I had, I remember like when I was building the first three and the first two were sold and I was doing something over there waiting on the third one to sell. And there's two kids, there's like 14, two guys, black kids. And they walked up to me and they're like, man, you building these? How much they rent for? And I'm like, oh, these not for rent, they for sale. And it's like, oh man, who be buying these? It must be white people. I was like, actually brother, I was like, you know, there's actually people that look just like you that are about 10 years older than you that actually the buyers of these. And it's like, man, for real? Like, we didn't know like we could do that kind of stuff. And so like, that's the type of imagery that they need, you know what I mean? Because they don't have that nowhere over in those neighborhoods. And so when we move back, it's unfortunate that kids, that friends that grew up together, right? Like y'all got friends that didn't go to college that, that dropped out of high school, right? Yeah. You know? But imagine after you do what you do and you decide to go to college and you go to work, you know, work every day and you got student loan debt, and you want to move back to the neighborhood, your buddy's still back there. But when you get ready to move back, it's like, nah, we ain't got no options for you, bro. You got to go to the suburbs, you know, instead of having an option for you. So there's people that want to move back and want to be good examples to the next generation and say, look, I made it and I'm still here, you know, or come from another neighborhood. Look, I grew up in a neighborhood just like this, but now I'm here. And, uh, you know, that's the type of representation our kids need. So, yeah, yeah I, I, haven't had, I haven't had any pushback because, like, my focus has specifically been not displacement. Like I'm not knocking on nobody's doors, asking nobody's grandma to sell their house. I'm not doing none of that. It's only abandoned property, drug infested property, neglected property. That's the only things I'm taking to build new construction on. Anything else I buy over there, if it's got tenants, I'm trying to keep them there. Like I don't want to displace anybody. Hey, that's hard, man. I love it here. And <laughs> that, that kind of goes to the next segue I wanted yeah. to go in because you talked about it earlier about how whenever you're coming through, a lot of the times we speeding up the gentrification. Mm -hmm. So 
can you kind of explain like how is that that we're helping them in the long run whenever we're doing mm -hmm. some of these things yeah okay so and this mainly comes with wholesaling and flipping what we don't realize that it's sold to us that this is how you make money without having a lot of money to invest right Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're getting real estate from a distressed seller and then you're marking it up and selling it to an investor. Well, most of the time, the investors don't look like us, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of times, the people that you're negotiating with and selling to, they feel happy. A lot of them didn't want to sell to anybody else except somebody looked like them. Like yeah. another part of history that we don't talk about, we talk about red lighting, right? when the government started backing loans for certain neighborhoods and they excluded the black neighborhoods for the most part. Well, we forget about the part that we already own houses. Like our grandparents and great grandparents worked and built houses out of pocket. And so a lot of these houses that was built in the twenties and thirties and forties that, that are still in neighborhoods that we're inheriting. You know what I mean? Those our great grandparents and grandparents built those out of pocket and we let those go now. Right. And then so like our generation, the ones that have those now, or the previous generation that are in their 60s and 70s that have them now, a lot of the wholesale deals come from people like that. And they've held on to it specifically because they don't want their family legacy to be given away to another culture. Mm -hmm. And you go in as a wholesaler and they really think you're buying the property or you go in as an investor and they really think you're about to keep the property. And all you're about to do is renovate it and flip it and sell it to the highest bidder, whoever that is. And a lot of times they don't look like us, you know? So you're basically turning the neighborhood over for a quick profit, right? And so, like, you know, so that's why I'm very purposeful and I'm trying to tell people to be cognizant of that. Like, it's okay to do that and make money, but try to keep it within the community. Like, yeah. a wholesaler, find an investor from the neighbor, you know, from the community, a black investor or somebody that has the general interest of the community at heart and somebody that's networking with either agents that can bring people from the community that are looking to buy a house so that it stays in the community or people that want to rent that look like us that want to live in the neighborhood. You know, it's ways that we can do it and still make money but not just turn the neighborhood over to outside communities, basically. Yeah. Gotta practice that group economics, man. That's, that's what it like, is. 100% group economics. That's thing. And I really want to pivot now to the second thing, because you doing group yeah. economics on a major scale, my brother. Like, <laughs> we didn't even get to talk about it yet, but I'm, I'm excited yeah. about it, because, like, you just, with your fund, didn't y'all exceed y'all goal? And, like, it's cool. Yeah, so the maximum that a fund can raise is a million and seventy thousand, and we hit that number on July, July ninth. So, yeah, after six months. Congratulations, man! I was just about to say y'all just dropped away. Yeah, the like, the beginning of the year. I, it's like it took about seven months. I started it in like December, like yeah, December, December. Yeah, man. So, so that whole project was so we just talked about all the new construction, right? Mm -hmm. And I hinted on this topic a little bit, but it's about protecting the existing residents. So as you go in and revitalize or when you see a neighborhood about to be gentrified, the only way you can control rents, the only way you can have any control over displacement is to actually own the other real estate, right? And so when you know the gentrification is coming, you can go in and invest and put yourself in a position to benefit from the value appreciation of everything. So that gives you a good ROI. And that way you don't have to focus so much on the cash flow, which means you don't have to go in and raise rents and displace people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was the focus of that project. It was, let's go in, uh, another tire landlord. This one, the parents actually still owned it, but the son didn't want to take over it. He just wanted, you know, because he, he's got a corporate job. He's got a different mindset on what he wants to do with his life. So nothing wrong with that. He's got to start another business. So the family had put the entire portfolio up for sale, 18 houses, two commercial buildings, right on the Black Wall Street street of Fifth Ward called Lions Avenue. 
And so when I saw the opportunity, I was like, man, this is a good one to take control of. Yeah. Because some of the tenants have been there 30 years, literally. Matter of fact, the Houston newspaper, the Houston Chronicle, wrote an article that came out today about this project. And they got interviews from a lady that's 72 that's lived there half her life. You know, I, there's two sisters that have been there, living there 20 years next door to each other. And one of them's daughter live on the property, too, in a different house. So to say you got this type of long-term tenants, and when the owners say we're going to sell, all of these people get nervous. Right. Because their rent is like 550 to 700. They know they can't go nowhere else and find rent like that, you know. And so for me, 18 houses between 500 and 700 dollars a month in rent, that's still bringing in 11,000 some dollars a month. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'm like, OK, if I can do the same like I did with the other one and negotiate an owner finance situation where I don't have to use a bank, I can make this work. Right. And so I went to the sellers and I was like, I offer you 10 percent down. And they were like, nah, we need something more than that because, you know, we're ready to retire. We need some significant money. So we ended up selling on 50%. They were asking $1.5 million for the whole portfolio, all 18 houses and the two commercial buildings. I talked them down to $250,000, basically. So we settled at $1.25, but I talked them in 50% at closing and then 50% in two years. No payments in the middle. So give yeah. them... Yeah. So, and the way I was able to negotiate that is because they hadn't had any accounting record, right? So they were just collecting payments every month, like Xerox copies of money orders and stuff. And so I explained to them that if I want to be able to get a bank loan on this eventually, but I'm going to need two years of strong financials to submit to the bank. So I said, so if you work with me, let me give you half of what we agreed on now. Let me give me two years to get everything up and running, get the commercial space back online and get that revenue generated, then when I go to the bank, I'm only asking them for $650,000. they are going to give me that all day, yeah. you know, because it appraised for $1.35 right now, right? So by then, it's going to appraise for at least two point five or something like that because it's going to have so much more revenue coming from the commercial side. So when they agreed to that, I was like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to, like, do something else I wanted to do because we always mad at Oprah, LeBron. We're like, man, why not buy in the hood? You know, they... We mad at Jay-Z because he didn't buy the Marcy projects, you know. But let's think about it. We got trillions of dollars going through our community every year. Mm-hmm. And, but, so if we could collectively invest our money, we can control a lot of this narrative that we're waiting on the wealthy ones to handle for us, right? Yeah. So that's what made me make the decision to say, hey, I had private investors. I had somebody that could have funded it, gave me the money with, for like a 10 15% return. And I could have kept the project to myself. But I was like, nah, this is more something I want to create a blueprint for what, what we can do in our communities. And so that's how the whole crowdfund came about, man. Everything I'm talking about happened, the negotiations happened in uh, November. And by the end of November or December, I was running with the crowdfund. I even told the sellers what I was planning to do, you know, because they were older black couple. And they were like, wow, like, we'll give you time to make that work. We really want to see you successful with that, you know. So it's all about communication, man. It's all about communication and delivering the right message. And so... Yeah, what it's done is it's really been working. Well, it really worked, you know? Yeah. <laughs> closed on it in March. So I actually closed on it before the crowdfund finished just to make sure the sellers didn't get antsy, you know? So I closed on it and I had only... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Raised like two hundred and thirty thousand at that point in time with the crowdfund, which is still pretty good. And I just, you know, bridged the rest of it with private investor capital, some of my own money. Yeah, and so just I think some people were apprehensive. You know, they were like, 
we've never seen this happen before. Yeah. So what if we give you the money and then you don't close on it? You know? And so those types of things happen. Like, what are you going to do with it once you close? So I think some of them were just wanting to watch and wait. So that's why I went ahead and, and closed. They started renovations immediately so people could see this is real mm-hmm. and this is really what's possible. And after that, you know, people continue to invest. And I think just, it's like almost like a perfect storm with everything that's going on with the social climate. Right before the George Floyd thing, I think the raise was at about 700000 And man, in like the last few months, it raised another 300000 or 350000 So people really, I think that really showed us the importance of why we need to control our own neighborhoods. Because if we control these neighborhoods, we have more control over how they're policed, you know, how, you know, everything, everything. So it just, it makes sense for us to say we own these areas, you know. Yeah, man, I'm hopeful, well, I know this is going to be a start to bigger projects that do the same type of thing. Yes, sir. And I know you mentioned that you wanted to be like the blueprint. So could you like dive into exactly like how people can go about starting these types of funds and like how you structured it a bit? Yeah. So before Barack Obama was in office, it was impossible for a bunch of people that were not millionaires or make over a quarter million dollars a year for the past two years to be able to collectively invest in million dollar projects. It's called syndication for the big deals. And that's how a lot of times when you see malls or shopping centers or big apartment complexes, it's not really one owner. It's either like a big company, like an insurance company that's bought it, or it's a syndication. It's a group of people that invested money together, but they're all, like I said, that's categorized as an accredited investor. You worth a million dollars or you made 250 for the past two years in a row. Well, Barack Obama implemented something in the Jobs Act that said anybody can invest collectively now, up to $10,000. So the legislation is there. So this is like, it's SEC regulated. So you have to do it through a third party platform. So imagine this being like a GoFundMe, but for investing instead of donations, right? So there's a bunch of those platforms out there and you just look up Regulation CF Crowdfund and you'll see different platforms that allow you to raise capital for these types of projects. But it's a few things that they got to have for them to be successful. Number one, they got to have cash flow. That's the most important thing. A lot of people want to raise money for things. And then what happens is you have a bunch of, a lot of newbie investors, really like people that haven't had the opportunity to invest before, you know, you can keep the investment amount low, like 250, 500. I kept mine at 250. So I gave everybody an opportunity to be a part, but a lot of those people don't really understand investing. Right. So if you take their money and you got something that it's going to take two or three years for them to start seeing a return, that's not good. Yeah. You know I mean? They, you know, they already have, higher than average expectations of I'm about to get rich off of this. And you already have to taper that expectation in reality. So it has to be something already generating revenue so that when they invest, you can start giving them a return immediately or within, you know, within six months of closing. So that's what I'm doing with this one. Number one, it also has to have upside potential. So you can't really crowdfund something in a neighborhood that doesn't have any catalyst for value appreciation. So it has to be some type of activity. Like you can't go do this in a war zone. You don't want to do it somewhere where you know it just seems like a good idea and you want to be the spark that's just too risky to take other people's money so it's got to be somewhere where there's some type of redevelopment already happening it's got to be something where some part of it already has revenue coming in and you have to find sellers that'll work with you on flexible terms because you don't, you don't want to have a, a bank tied into the deal unless you really really have to because it can get nasty you don't want something to happen where the payments can't be made and then the bank tries to foreclose, which means all your investors are going to lose their money. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I think those three things are really important pieces. So if you can figure out things that fit that equation, then those are definitely good things, good areas to crowdfund. 
Um, and a lot of cities have that going on. I mean, there's gentrification happening everywhere. So all you want to do is get close to the gentrification. You don't have to be right in the center of it, but right on the outskirts of it where the property values are still affordable, where there's still a lot of upside potential, and you can duplicate the same model. There you have it. My brother just gave out the actual blueprint. So what you did, I love it, bro, because, yeah. like, you know, a lot of times whenever people do things like what you're doing in the name of group economics, they still be stingy with that information, that knowledge when they come to it. So it's great that you share it because really that's what you're doing right now. Like, if we can get people to start doing this and investing in this on a mass scale, we can start seeing a lot more changes, like you said. Like, yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. overnight. Right. It took you, what, what it was, 2013, 2013 to 2017 yeah. to really get your, your right. development off the ground. But that's the mindset we got to come into it with. Yeah. Like you said, uh, the people who you, the new investors that ain't never invest before, mm-hmm. they want to get rich off $250. Mm-hmm. That's not like the way we got to approach this is we get more people in on it and understand it. We can really start seeing those changes, like exactly. and actually benefiting from it. Precisely. That's it. That's it. I like the fact that you kept it at $250 to keep it at like an affordable level for a lot of people to be able to get in. Yeah. And I think that was really cool too. With like, you know, I know some of the listeners may not be familiar with exactly how you had set up the crowdfund, but like you could put the 250 in and you could get like, wasn't it five shares? That was yeah, like five, five shares. Uh-huh. And five shares. That- yeah. And so the way that part works is, so I took basically the value of the property in about two years when it's done. And I said, I'm gonna sell 40% of that and share, just like you do a company, right? So I broke it up into $50 increments, and I said the minimum buy-in is five. You got to buy at least five, so that's $250. And in exchange for that, you get all the, I'm taking 40% of the net profit from the whole project. So you take all the rent revenue every year, after you pay all the bills, what's left, 40% of that gets divided up, and each share gets the equal percentage of that. So however many shares you get, that's how much your dividend payouts are, basically. And then also, since you own, so this is something a little, little bit more technical, but when you buy shares or when you do a crowdfund, you can do it two ways. You can raise debt, which means people are loaning you money, or you can raise equity, which means they are actually buying ownership. And so what I did was I did equity because I want everybody to have ownership in it. I didn't want to just say, I'm going to pay y'all 10% return on your money. And once I pay y'all back, you know, you're out. I want to make sure everybody has the opportunity to own a piece of this long term. And so what that means also is since they own shares, as the property value goes up, the value of their shares goes up, right? So as gentrification continues to happen, this property is worth 1.3 when we bought it, it'll be worth 5 million in 10 years, easy. So everybody's share value, if you hold on to that long, that's how much your value is going to increase, you know? So it's just a model that works for everybody. So yeah, so people have the opportunity to invest a very small percentage and actually experience how that works. My brother got that go give a spirit written all over, man. That's hard, bro. Yeah. Just like everybody really just winning. Like, yeah. I'm sorry for the people who couldn't invest now, man. <laughs> man, I mean, a lot of people still hitting me up wanting to get in now, but you know, that wave has passed. Uh, but it's going to be more projects. I'm going to do one in Baton Rouge. I own a bunch of property by Southern. So I'm going to do the same thing. That's, that's a different type of catalyst. So it's not really gentrification, but it's a pent up demand around like HBCUs, especially. You know what I mean? To be redeveloped around there. There's not enough housing on campus most of the time. So this is an opportunity to kind of create a similar model, but it's focused on what we can do around our schools. Mm, that's all, man. Redeveloping these HBCUs too, man. Yeah. I'm excited, bro. This is it. 
And the next 10 years going to look beautiful. That's all I can keep thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro. So we're going to just segue to our last section called What's mm-hmm. on Your Timeline? So mm-hmm. we're just going to uh, – is this anything that you saw in your TL? It could be something inspirational, something funny you probably saw. Just anything that you just was like, you know what, I kind of want to talk about that. Man, okay, well, it ain't funny. It ain't funny, but I saw Donald Trump tweet today. That, oh, man. <laughs> that everybody in the suburbs, that they don't have to worry about low-income housing and being around their neighborhoods anymore. I was like, man, that's that's a bold thing. But, you know, what I started thinking about, yeah. too, is like, okay, part of the issue is we as a community now, as a culture, we don't own a lot of businesses that can employ a lot of our people, right? Mm-hmm. But that goes back to what we talked about earlier. Before desegregation, we owned businesses and we all worked for these businesses. You know what I mean? Like, do you think during segregation they needed affirmative action? Nope, nope. Because we had our own people, right? Boycott shit. <laughs> That's why they can boycott shit. Exactly. Facts. Facts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, like, I think that's a call to action for us. It's like, okay, we got to get back on this wave. We got to start owning more. We got to, it's cool. And I don't like people that say everybody should be an entrepreneur because it's not cut out. Everybody's not cut out. Yeah, to be we need some of them good corporate people that like those jobs, that like being told what to do and like to perform and get metrics and, get a raise. We need a lot of those working for our companies to help us build bigger companies so that we can employ more people. And then we can hire our own and move more people out of the low income tax bracket. So we don't have to be, we don't have to feel like it's a punch in our gut every time he says something about low income housing, because technically in reality, there's more white people on section eight and more white people on food stamps than us, you know, yep. but, but we feel like it's a personal attack every time. And part of that is because we don't control our economics in our community. Man, I'm so happy you like walk people through that historical example. I know you see me over here going crazy. That, <laughs> bro, that's that stuff I really be like. I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I watched the ep- uh, episode of Killer Mike, and then I yeah. had just different stuff that I was intaking at the given time had got me to realize, like, dang, bro, like I was one of those people that hadn't thought about it. Like the walk through history, like we really in desegregation, like we own our own stuff. Like we had whole parts of town. Mm-hmm. that we lived in and that's where we had to buy your food that's where you had to go to the restroom that's where you had to get water that's where you had to do everything because it was the only place you was allowed so we had our own ice cream parlors our own movie theaters our own everything and like people don't think about how like none of that is here anymore like it all just you know and what's funny is like a lot of cities the buildings are still there yeah like, like, all we talk about is the Black Wall Street. We talk about the one that got bombed and burned. But you go to Bronzeville in Chicago, everybody that was around, the seniors talk about, they say this was just like Black Wall Street. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I said, Lions Avenue. I got pictures of Lions Avenue thriving, like cars all up and down the street. People, out, up, you know, dress nice. You know what I mean? It's just like, mm-hmm. man, we don't talk about none of that. All we talk about the one that got bombed. Why do we do that? Yeah, I think, like, because I even think about it. I feel like a lot of that reason is because we get scared because like, oh, if we do it again, this is what's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of maybe like a tactic. That's probably why that one is spoken about the most because mm-hmm. maybe they're like, you know what? We don't want y'all to have this shit again. So yeah. yeah, they don't want us to be exposed to what was real. So they don't correct that narrative. They let us think that was it. Right. Because if we correct that narrative, then we can do exactly what you said, which is like, I really want people to key in on that. Like, you can then create the jobs and control the situation for your people. If yeah. the minimum wage in your area don't pay enough, you open a factory that do pay enough 
then goddamn it, you fix the problem. Now people can live a little bit better. Think about this. Like we talk about a big part of our issue is the slave mentality and slavery, you know, and how that's held us back. Think about this. These businesses that we're talking about now is in every city. These people's parents were literally slaves or some of them were literally slaves. So how can we blame that on the reason why we can't get ahead now when the people that were actually slaves started more banks, started more businesses, yep. hired more people than we're doing now? You know, I mean, I understand that's a part of it, but we can't hang our hat on that and say that's why we can't get ahead. We can't. We got to take responsibility. We got to move forward. That, that taking responsibility part, I think that's one of the biggest things, one of the biggest messages with the Black Wolf Renaissance. Like, mm-hmm. we can't sit here and like we no longer we can sit here and just like blame blame everybody blame everything but ourselves we need to take that look inside Mm -hmm. look at how you're spending your money look at the decisions you're making and seeing how you actively how you creating your life and creating the changes that you want to see because until you do that yeah you're just talking basically yeah no i agree and don't get it twisted we still need the people that are fighting for the equal rights for the injustices we still need that group but we need more of us focused on the other stuff because everybody's focused on that one component when there's so many other aspects of it that we need to be working on at the same time. Exactly. Because yeah. then we ain't got to worry about, you and know, I like how you oh, happy because, mm-hmm. oh, my bad. Because then we ain't got to worry right. about now, oh, somebody happy because a company decided to change their racist logo or mm-hmm. because, you know, somebody decided to paint some streets or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. then we can actually, like, create the change that we want to see through the businesses and the control and the network that we have. Like, I included that in a blog that I wrote for BWR. Like, the boycott with the buses was able to happen because they had a Black-owned taxi system that was able to run and keep the people going to work. Mm-hmm. The people weren't going to be able to not just go to work. Right. That's another right. thing people don't talk about. People Like, people not just not going to shop. They mm-hmm. still going to go to Route 21, mm-hmm. still going to buy all this stuff. We are the people who have to create the substitutes and mm-hmm. the things that our own folks can go to to keep the money within the community. Yep. That's it. Mm-hmm. People are not going to inconvenience themselves for a revolution. Right. Yeah. Right. You're right, man. You're right. And it's crazy sometimes whenever you even talk about the substitutes, how whenever people do start creating those substitutes, people start to criticize them. Like mm-hmm. Master P with his brand. Like, he yeah. came with the rice, with the pancake mix, with all of this, because he knows that that's where most of the black people spend their money at. Yep. Whenever they're shopping, that's one of the largest demographics that people spend their money at. Master yep. Pete is not an idiot. He does his yeah. research. And, uh, oh, but Jalen, why couldn't he come out with vegan noodles? I know, man. This is like, ridiculous. It's, come on, dog. It's never ending, man. Nobody's ever happy, but nobody's taking action either. So, you know. <laughs> Hey, man, that's the biggest part, too. Nobody yes. takes action. You got all the criticism, but you right. cannot take action. Yep. Yeah. Self-hate, Well, Chris, my brother, we appreciate you hopping on the show, bro. Could you please plug yourself in, let the people know how they can follow you, keep up with you, any projects you got going on? You offer mentorship and stuff, too, like that, too, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man, I got that. Uh, So my platform for mentorship, and like learn at your own pace is called learnfromchris.com. Just go to learnfromchris.com. It's got several different ways that you can get in. Like if you just get started or if you want to get in a small group mentorship program, that's on there. Let's see. What else I got? My Instagram page, man. That's my main social media platform. It's underscore I-N-V-S-T-R. So it's like investor. The only vowel is the I. So yeah, investor on Instagram. That's why I'm most active. You can reach me in a DM there. Uh, if you want to send me a direct message, uh, you can send me one there. 
or you can email me at chris at learnfromchris.com. Yeah, man, I'm open book, you know. I'm always giving away game. I will be announcing when the next project's coming online. So anybody want to get tapped in, man, you know, that's how they can find me. Hey, y'all definitely, definitely check in with my brother, man. Y'all see the vibes he got. I know if y'all tapping into that mentorship, I know, I know the game crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I already explained to you how he winning, how everybody winning in the situation. Why wouldn't you want to win? I know it's crazy. Why wouldn't you want to win? Right. Let's all win, man. Yes, sir. Well, before we wrap this one up, y'all, we're going to hop into a few housekeeping notes. First and foremost, as always, thank y'all for tuning into the Black Oak Renaissance Podcast. Growth's always crazy. Continue to like, share, and subscribe. Y'all make sure to check out our book, Manage Your Money Like the 1%. That's available really well. in ebook and e-book. paperback. Yeah. So you can buy it from your favorite retailer, wherever you want to go to Amazon, Walmart, Target, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble. We global, baby. So y'all definitely check that out. And also, Eight Weeks of Wealth. Y'all join the Eight Weeks of Wealth. We're going in, we're doing eight consecutive weeks, just educating people on different topics. Last night, we did our uh, house hacking course with Brian last night. It was really, really good. So y'all definitely be on the lookout and try to join. You'll get lifetime access to all of these webinars. Brother Spiller, you got anything? Man, just, you know, y'all check out that eight weeks, man. That's going to be crazy. We spend a lot of game, everybody getting a lot of information. And uh, also just a, on a little bit more of a personal tip, a little announcement, man. By the time this podcast episode done dropped, I'm going to be, you know what I'm saying, got my license and everything together. So if you're in Louisiana and you need some life insurance, y'all hit up your boy. Hey, hey. Up, man. <laughs> I thought you was going to tell her about the mobile home, man. Hey, I did get a mobile home. I forgot to tell y'all about that. I did buy a mobile home. We gonna, I'm gonna, you know, we gonna get some BWR content on it. I got you. Hey, that's what's up, bro. Congrats. Appreciate you. I'm trying to get like Chris out here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Start small. Hey, yes, sir. Yeah, man. Awesome, well, bro. Being, appreciate y'all, man. No problem, my brother. Appreciate you, man. And with that being said, this is Black Wolf Renaissance signing out. Peace. I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my lot unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is run money marathon. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.